Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Crossroads Church Podcast. My name is Jessica, and I am your host, and we are Crossroads Church, located about an hour north of Denver in northern Colorado. Our website is crossroadscolorado.com, and I encourage you to go there, look around, see what we're about, see who we are. Also, I am linking the gather page in the show notes, and that's going to be where you'll find a lot of resources also. A link to our e-newsletter called The Feed. There's links to a connect card where you can fill out as much information as you feel comfortable with and let us know that you are here and joining us. And there's also a link to give. In light of all things happening in the Ukraine this week, too, you could designate giving to Adventure is Worth It. And all of those proceeds are going to our partners in Romania who are serving the Ukrainians. So here is Ryan launching a new series called Living in Christ. And then he will send us out with a blessing at the end. Yeah, that's right. She earned her $10 yes. there with that. So good to see everybody. Um, yeah, kind of a big, big week all around. Crazy. So we want to pause and acknowledge some big news for our church, our congregation. Uh, Pastor Katie is in a transition of discernment, and we sent a letter out about her decision to kind of move forward with what God has in her life and her kind of vocational ministry ending here at Crossroads after kind of 13 years. And so we're going to be, yeah, let's celebrate Katie and her impact for sure. So, so kind of the month of March will be a transition month for Katie, and she'll be speaking a few times. And the 27th, we're going to celebrate her and her impact and ministry here. So mark your calendars uh, to come out and share your encouragement with her. And uh, so many lives have been touched through her leadership and ministry, and we're all grateful for that. So just want to make sure we don't, don't, uh, don't pass over. That's a big deal for us as a church. So... Um, we're grateful for you, Katie. Thank you very much for your leadership and, and everything you've done over these last years. Yeah, so uh, my name is Ryan. If you're a guest, thank you for being here today. I just want to offer my welcome to you. If you're tuning in online or out in the atrium, thank you for just being a part of uh, this moment, whatever it might be, what, whatever reason you're here. You might not even know yet why you're here. It might just be like, she's really pretty, and she said, if you come to church, we'll go have dinner, and so you're here. Well, good job. I'm a smart person, but uh, great to have everybody here today. Hey, this past week, I learned something really interesting. I didn't know this before. You might have known it, but I didn't know it, that Olympians, uh, when they go and participate and compete, that every person who competes in the Olympics gets a medal, a participation medal. Did anybody know that? Did you know that? Did some people know that? I did not know that. So you go and get like a competitor's medal, a, a participation medal, whatever it might be, which is really fascinating to me, right? Because that honors the, the reality of what participation means at something like the Olympics, right? To participate in the Olympics, you don't like wake up one morning and just go, well, the Olympic trials are tomorrow. I think I'll try downhill skiing right? That doesn't happen, right? I mean, it starts, you're two years old, three years old, right? You end up sleeping on skis for your whole life, right? So no matter what happens in terms of your, the, the, the outcome of your participation, there's something powerful about participating. And that goes not just for the Olympics, it goes for all areas of life. There's something so powerful about this idea of participation. Like, so all of us, we know and we have experienced that power when someone participates in our lives. So just pause for one second and think about a season in your life 
where maybe you were celebrating something. Maybe you were grieving something. Maybe there was a pressure point or a pain point, and somebody just came along and participated with you in that moment. Right? How did that make you feel? Right? I mean, you feel like you're not alone. There's such power in participation. Right? There, and, and we can't ever negate that. We can't ever negate the fact of just people showing up, being present with us. It is an encouragement, that it empowers us, it moves forward. And here's what I think is fascinating. I think that in the life of Western Christianity, so I'm just going to say this and, and, and just be honest with you, I feel like we have, as, as important as participation is in life, I feel like we have a non-participation issue within Western Christianity. Now, some of you in the room, you immediately thought to yourself, oh, He's going to talk to us about volunteering in kids' church. That's what he's going to do today, right? They need some more ushers and greeters. That's what he's talking about. Well, rest assured, that's not what I'm talking about. I actually don't think we have a huge participation problem in the broader kind of Western church when it comes to participating in the institution of church, right? The reality is people kind of get that. They hear that. They get connected. But I think when it comes to actually participating in the redemptive work of healing this world, of what we call being a peacemaker, being actively engaged in some of the darkest spaces in our world, we have a participation problem. And honestly, I've seen it over the last week with a lot of the posts around Ukraine. Like I've seen posts that seem very well-meaning, but they say things like, only God can end this war. And I think God's like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I had nothing to do with this war. (laughs) Don't put this one on me, (laughs) right? Like, there's this really wonderful idea that, well, let's just pray, or, or, and, and we can sit back and all of a sudden not be actively engaged. And I, I don't think it just has to do with big, massive, global-scale events like war, but it happens in our own community when we deal with things like housing or food insecurity, when we kind of are dealing with abusive relationships, we're dealing with trauma. There is this kind of thing that has developed within Christianity that Christianity is about going to church, kind of getting the goosebumps going, recognizing that Jesus has saved me, whatever that means, and I'm all good. And, you know, every now and then I might be nice to someone or I might, you know, let that, you know, kind of somehow dictate what my life looks like. But we're really not actively participating in the very, very difficult work of bearing a cross, like Jesus would say, right? Somewhere along the way, we've lost this idea that this whole thing that we call Christianity right now is a movement of martyrdom, Like its very framework and foundation was founded by people that gave their lives for this thing, whatever it might be. And and the question then becomes, well, why is that? Like what's happened? And I think what's happened is that there's been this dominant theory of what the cross is all about, the cross of Jesus that has developed over the last thousand years. And it has produced this idea of non-participation. And this big theory, it's become kind of the prevalent, most people who would say, I'm a Christian or I go to church, when, they're, when they talk about the cross, they think in these terms. It's kind of a big word, but it's this idea of substitutionary atonement. Whew, that's a big one. How many of you just got super excited about the rest of the talk? <laughs> I can already tell this is not going to have anything to do with my life, right? But if you stick with me, it will, right? So this theory that Jesus was a substitute right? A punitive substitute for you and for me on the cross has become the most familiar, most dominant theory of atonement. Now, the word atonement is this idea of, the best way to think about atonement is at one Like, how do we become participants? How do we become with God, right? How do we move from this idea of separation, of 
uh, not understanding God to being in tune, in flow, at one with God. And so this theory of substitutionary atonement has become very familiar. Most Christians today and most non-Christians that really know anything about Christianity or have interacted with it, this is what they think of when they hear these phrases. Jesus died for our sins, right? So they think substitution. Like, I was supposed to die. Jesus died so I didn't have to die. So now I can be with God because God is this perfect, infinite being who can't stand to have evil sin in God's presence. And, and for God not to take sin seriously would be an act of injustice, right? And so someone has to pay the penalty, this language for penalty, right? So we can hear, we hear things like Jesus is a sacrifice for our sins. We hear things like Jesus died in our place, or Jesus is the payment for our sin. These are all variations of when you hear that, people tend to go, okay, yes, like penal substitutionary atonement. Someone had to face the consequences of the sin in this world. And because God is an infinite being, only an infinite being could take on the full weight of that. And so Jesus goes to the cross in my place, I should have been on that cross. Now Jesus goes on the cross, takes my punishment, and now I'm free to go to heaven. That's the kind of dominant theory. Now, some Christians today, they defend this vigorously. They would say, this is the heartbeat of the gospel. And that might even be some of us in the room. This is what we were handed. This is certainly what I was handed growing up. And the defendants say, you cannot have the gospel without this. But some Christians are uncomfortable with this idea. And some Christians are very troubled by the idea that the God of the universe that we describe as good, right, would require like blood sacrifice. And that that sacrifice would be Jesus, who we would refer to as God's only son. And this kind of idea of child sacrifice, it's very disturbing. So there's some that would say, hold, hold on, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't know. And then there's some people that aren't sure. They've heard about this. And like, I don't know. And then there's some that just, we just haven't thought much about it. We're like, hey, I kind of like going to church. It makes me feel good, whatever, right? We're just not bothered by it. But this is, for most people, for most Christians today, like, they just take it for granted that this is the orthodox belief, that this is what Christians have believed for all of time, and this is the only way, and you have to believe this about the cross and the atoning nature of it. But the truth is, this theory is only about a thousand years old. Now, that's old. Don't get me wrong. Anybody in the room a thousand years old? <laughs> we got one. We got one. I love it. I'm gonna, it sounded like a young voice, too. So I want some of that. Whatever's in that cup, right? <laughs> Most of us aren't, it's old, but in the history of, of like this Jesus movement, it's really not that old, right? And, and what happens in about, you know, 10,000, about 1097, about 1100, a guy named Ansel of Canterbury writes this kind of treatise called Why Did God Become Human? And this is the first time this idea of substitution, that someone had to pay the price, gets laid out. And then over the next few centuries, it just becomes the common understanding amongst Christians. And other theories of atonement, other ways in which the cross was at work, just kind of begin to take secondary. They're, not, they're certainly not the majority, right? And so again, when you hear somebody ask you today, or if you were to ever get in a conversation with another person who follows Jesus, and they say, do you believe in the cross? Or they say, do you believe Jesus died for your sins? They're basically saying, do you believe in substitutionary atonement? Do you believe that you should have been, because you're such a terrible person, you're filled with sin, and God can't stand to be in that sin. Like The only way you can be with God is to have that sin covered and forgiven. The only way God can forgive that sin is through blood sacrifice. Do you, that's what's being asked. Now, here's the thing. There's really not a problem with the argument. Like, the argument's pretty good. 
right? Anselm's argument makes perfect logical sense. The only problem is the idea of substitution as payment and penalty, right, would have been completely foreign to Paul, who really talks about Christ crucified. One of Paul's like most famous pastors, when he thinks about the gospel, is this phrase, Christ crucified. And so the truth is, this, this idea of substitutionary atonement really would have been completely foreign to Paul and others in his day. There never would have been the thought in sacrifice that, like, I deserve to die on this altar, but something has to take my place, so I'll bring this animal, right? And so, so there's, a, there's some theologians out there and historians that would say this idea of substitutionary atonement produces some, some pretty pretty dangerous things. It produces kind of bad history because Paul never would have thought it. It's imposing something beyond, you know, after Paul, back onto Paul and others in the New Testament. They would say it's bad anthropology because it presents humanity as such wormish beings that God just really can't stand us. We're really not just below angels as like one biblical writer describes humanity right? And then it's also bad theology, because it really does kind of make God a moral monster. It turns God into Molech, this, this God uh, in the ancient Near East that the, the, is, that the Israelites, the Jewish people, were forbidden to follow because this God would require child sacrifice. And we have these wonderful passages of the Jewish God Yahweh saying, no, <laughs> this is a no-no. We don't do this. We don't sacrifice our children. But yet we've developed this whole idea that that God then had to sacrifice God's son to make God happy. So there's some real problems with this if, if we just are honest with ourselves. And I think that one of the biggest like, things that has played out in this is this substitutionary atonement. I'll give you a chance to write that down. It's a fun word to write. Like This substitutionary atonement theory has led to a non-participatory faith in the healing of the world. Because it's been done. It's my debt's been paid, right? We sing that. My debt's been paid. It's good. I'm good. We're all good. I'm going to heaven. It's fine. Wonderful. Wash my hands of it. God's going to clean this place up. But it's not at all what Paul would have imagined. And so what I want to do today is we kind of set up and introduce this idea of one of Paul's favorite phrases, living in Christ. What did Paul mean about that? And what does Paul mean when he takes and uses this phrase in Christ over a hundred times? And he pairs it with this idea of a crucified Christ. So I want to explore some passages from Scripture from Paul, who's kind of one of the first people to really kind of wrestle with, why did Jesus die on a cross? What does it all mean? And see if we can't figure out a maybe a more beautiful, a more inviting, and even a more powerful understanding and theory around atonement for the cross that doesn't require God to be so angry, <laughs> Right? Because you as a parent, like, you know, I would hope that somewhere inside of you, you would know that if you had two children and one of them disobeyed you, you would not count it as a win if you said, well, I think I'll just really punish the other one and let this other one go free and we'll call it a win. Everybody's good. Like, we know there's something about that that just doesn't rest well. Okay, so here's the first thing. The essence of Paul's gospel, Paul's understanding of the gospel was this idea of Christ crucified and risen. So these two ideas were central to Paul's understanding of the beauty and the importance of Jesus. That Jesus was the Christ, the, sent, the one sent by God, Emmanuel, God with us. And he was crucified and he was raised to life. And for Paul, the word crucified is deeply important. This is not just, oh, any way of death. Jesus didn't simply die and then come back to life. 
Jesus was crucified. And to say that Jesus was crucified would be to say that Jesus was an anti-imperial figure, that Jesus went against Rome. Because Rome would only crucify two types of people. So crucifixion wasn't like, hey, every Thursday, let's see who gets crucified. Let's hang, go and hang on down there. That's not how it worked. Like Rome had lots of ways of punishing, had lots of ways of providing capital punishment even, but it reserved crucifixion for two groups of people, chronically rebellious slaves and, and people who would dare to challenge imperial rule, either nonviolently or violently. They would resist the rule of Rome. So if you were leading a revolt against Rome, Violently or nonviolently, you would be crucified. Now, here's the thing. We have records that if you were leading a violent revolt, Rome would generally crucify all the followers as well because they wanted to squelch the violence. But if you were leading a nonviolent remote, it was usually the leader that would be crucified as an example. And both of these groups, what they have in common is that they rejected imperial authority. They rejected the wisdom that the empire said, this is how the world works. And so Rome said, if you're going to challenge our wisdom, if you're going to challenge the way we think the world should be structured, if you're going to challenge who we think should be on the top and who needs to stay on the bottom, we're going to make an example out of you. And that's why they would crucify these these two categories. Because crucifixion was public, it was prolonged, it would take hours and hours and hours, and it was extraordinarily painful. And it was sending a message, don't you dare defy Rome. Don't you dare defy imperial rule. And if you do, this is what will happen to you. And so when Paul says Christ crucified, he's not just, he's making a very strong political statement. He's saying this one that has been crucified by Rome, that Rome has rejected, God has chosen. Right? So for Paul, Jesus was an anti-empire figure. And that's important to understand about this whole reality, that the cross was a message that the world was saying, we're stronger, we're more powerful than your ideas, your methodologies. Let us show you what we think about your structure, okay? So there's a a, a great book on the first Paul that really kind of digs into the idea of the radical Paul. And these two authors uh, that I really appreciate, uh, this is what they wrote. They said, the empire killed Jesus. The empire killed Jesus. The cross was the imperial no to Jesus, but God had raised him. So for Paul, Paul knows the empire tried to say no to this Jesus. The empire tried to say your way, your kingdom that you're establishing will never be as powerful, will never be as strong. So it was, the, it was that way of saying no, but God had raised this Jesus. Paul had an encounter with this risen Jesus that he talks about. And so all of a sudden, the resurrection, these authors write, the resurrection was God's yes to Jesus and God's vindication of Jesus, and thus also God's no to the powers that kill Jesus, right? So for Paul, the, 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 the Roman authority, the powers of this world, the wisdom of this world, they said no to Jesus by crucifying him. But God says yes to Jesus. And this is important for Paul. The vindication of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, was God's emphatic yes. Like, this is my son, whom I am well pleased. And the evidence of that was the resurrection. And so for Paul, this phrase, Christ crucified, was a subversion. So it subverted the reality of the wisdom of this world. It it went against it. And he also understood it as a salvation from the wisdom of this world. So Christ crucified and risen was a subversion of the wisdom of this world 
And it was a salvation from the effects of the wisdom of this world. And he talks about this a lot in the beginning of his letter to the Corinthians. So I want to just read this to you kind of quickly. But as I read this, just listen for the distinctions that, and the comparison that he's making between weak and strong, between wisdom and foolishness. And so for Paul, the wisdom of this world is the crucifixion, is that power structure but the wisdom of God is the crucifixion. So this is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And again, what are you being saved from? Who is perishing in the middle of it? It's the violence. It's the oppression, right? It's all of that social structure system that would hold people back from justice and righteousness of God. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the learning of the learned I will set aside. He says, has not God made the wisdom of the world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom. <laughs> right? What Paul's saying is, listen, it, they, they have not found God because they haven't been able to see in the humility of Jesus, in the meekness of Jesus, right? In the, in, the, in the justice that Jesus, they haven't found God through that. So now it is the will of God through the foolishness of the proclamation, Christ crucified, to save those who have faith, right? Is it to save God from God's self? No, I think it's to save, God, save us from ourselves, to save us from our violence. And he says, listen, here's the thing. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. Now, what is Christ crucified? It's a stumbling block to anybody. It's a stumbling block to Jews, and it's foolishness to the Gentiles. It's a stumbling block to the Jews because they would consider it cursed to be hung on a cross. It's foolishness to the Gentiles because it's not power. It's the opposite of power. He says, but to those who are called, doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. Doesn't matter what your religion is. If you're called into this truth, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ crucified this reality and it's important to recognize that what Paul does here as he writes is he, he makes the power of God and the wisdom of God synonymous with the phrase Christ crucified. The power of God and the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. And that is the weakness and the foolishness of the world. If the world can't, can't handle it, it makes no sense. This person who's going to set up a kingdom, gives their life, dies, doesn't do anything. It's squelched. How's that wisdom? It's foolishness. Paul goes on, he says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And God chose the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and God chose the weak of the world to shame the strong. He goes on, he chose the lowly and despised of the world, those who count for nothing, to reduce to nothing those who are something so that no human being might boast before God. And God is the source of your life, in Christ. God is the source of it. This Christ who became wisdom, what? In the crucifixion became the wisdom from God, as well as righteousness and sanctification and redemption. All these things that you're looking for, all these things that you think religion is going to provide for you, following the law is going to provide for you, it's all found in the foolishness of God, Christ crucified. And he says, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, proclaiming the mystery of God, the revelation of God in Christ crucified. I didn't come with sublimity or words of wisdom, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that your faith, your hope, what you know of God might rest not on human wisdom, 
but on the power of God. And what's the power of God? The crucifixion. Like we can't, we pull these one little, I know that that's like, I'm just reading a whole bunch here, but you've heard, some of you have heard these verses just pulled out of this space. Oh, the power of God, that's the parting of the Red Sea. The power of God is the house that, that you got. The power of God is the healing. No, no, no. The power of God is Christ crucified, and that'll mess you up. Wait a second. And Paul says, but we do speak of a wisdom to those who are mature. To those who are actually mature, we do speak this wisdom, but it's not a wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away. So who is that for Paul? That was Rome. It's not a wisdom that Rome is going to aspire to, but it's wisdom to those who are mature, who live beyond the values of this world. Rather, we speak God's wisdom, which is mysterious and hidden, and God predetermined it before the ages for our glory. Like predetermined that this would be the way I reveal myself would be giving myself over to the violence to show how violence will never be the answer and how I will show them what my character and my qualities are actually like. And Paul goes on, he says, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That there's something about this radical message, this life lived in Jesus Christ crucified, that's the power of God at work in this world. It's the cruciform life of Jesus, right? A life that is, is continually dying and being raised, dying and being raised. The cruciform life of Jesus reveals God's power and wisdom at work in the world. And it saves us from the wisdom of this world, right? The normalcy of this world. So this is a saving work, right? But it's not saving us from God, right? It's not saving us from this God who's violent and demanding of blood. No, it's saving us from our idea of God. It's saving us from our idea of how the world should function, from the violence and the destructive wisdom that the world would say, this is how you should function. And what that does is it separates us from the truth of God. It separates us from what actually holds this world together, what actually is the foundation of creation. And what is the wisdom of this world? What some would call the domination system, the normalcy of civilization, Violence upon violence, establishing societies that are ruled by the few who use their power and their wealth and their wisdom to shape the social system for their own interest. And they usually do this through violence or through threat of violence. And if there wasn't ever a moment in the history of the world for us that are living right now to hear that and see it afresh, we're seeing it right now. We're seeing it right now, the wisdom of this world. Let's take our might, let's take our power, and let's go take what should be ours, the resources that we can do better with, and we'll come up with all kinds of excuses to do it, and we'll ruin lives, and we'll bring violence, and we'll show how might and power will change the world. And the whole cross reminds us that that is the foolishness of this world. That's the power of the cross. It was Rome at the time of Jesus. For the Ukrainians, it's Russia. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it is this cycle. And the cross and Jesus... Christ crucified is, is God saying, here's this, this new way of life, this new life in Christ that at just the right time, I'm showing you, I'm revealing you, you've missed it. You think you've been participating with me. I honestly think that that's part of the message. You think you've been participating with me, Israel. You think that somehow I was with you when you said, let's go to war and let's kill the Amalekites and let's kill the Jebusites and let's, let's take Jerusalem and let's take the women and the children and the virgins. You thought that was me. You weren't participating with me. You were participating with the violence of the world. And so at just the right time, when the world was ready to turn on its axis spiritually, 
God takes on flesh in the person of Jesus as a statement of faith and reveals, no, this is what it means. This is what it means to be with God, to be one with God, to go in and to bring eyes to the sight, right? Sight to the blind, hearing, to open up the prison doors, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to stand up for the oppressed. This is the way of God. You want to participate and be at one with God in the world? This is how you do it. And so like the Exodus, right, for the Israelites, this phrase, Christ crucified, and this phrase, Jesus is Lord, these were, these were big statements for Paul. And they were, it was a call for him, for his disciples, to become people who would center their lives in God rather than the pharaohs of this world. Jesus is Lord is a direct contradiction. You hear me say that all the time because we miss it. It is a direct contradiction to the phrase, Caesar is Lord. And Paul is calling by saying, Christ crucified and Jesus is Lord is calling his followers. And by extension, what, what, what our tradition has told us is inspired is that we continue to say that. We continue to live in that. That we are not going to follow the pharaohs of this world. And that's what the cross reveals. And so the cross and Christ crucified becomes this beautiful metaphor for a path of personal transformation, a new way of life. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 2, another letter he wrote. He says this, and it's a metaphor. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul was never actually physically crucified with Christ. But he says, it's happened to me, yet I live. No longer I, but Christ lives in me. Insofar as I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and given himself up for me. So Paul understands that there's this identity that has to take place. You identify with the cross. You identify with the suffering of Jesus. I mean, man, Paul would say things like, oh, that I would know Christ and experience in his suffering. What? He's nuts. He would not make a good American Christian. What is he talking about? We follow Jesus so we don't have to suffer, right? Am I right? Can I get a hashtag blessed, people? And this is not like good church growth stuff. I'm going to tell you that right now. But I just, this is, I think, to the best of my knowledge today, I could read something tomorrow that changes my mind. But to the best of my knowledge, life in Christ, like for Paul, this was an internal reality that I, I'm crucified with Christ. Christ wasn't crucified for me. <laughs> Christ was crucified for me to show me the path, the way of life so that I could participate in it. So life in Christ, this crucified Christ, involves internal death and resurrection, dying to an old way of thinking, dying to an old way of seeing this world, dying to an old value system, and rising into a new identity, a new way of life. And if anybody knew this, Paul, Paul understood it. Because Paul was going around breathing threats and throwing people in prison. And he was living under the normalcy of civilization and he had taken it and applied it to his understanding of God and his religion. And then one day he's on this little road to a town called Damascus and he's going to go set people straight and throw them in prison and participate in their stoning. And he has this experience, this visionary moment. And he hears Jesus say, Paul, Paul, why are you, said Saul actually, why are you persecuting me? He's like, what are you, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. So when Paul says in Christ, he goes, he goes back to his moment, like this, this moment where he realized that everybody who was following Jesus was somehow quite literally for Paul in Christ because when he was persecuting them, he was persecuting Jesus, the Lord of glory. And this radical shift takes place. And so I think Paul understood Christ crucified as participatory atonement, not substitutionary atonement. 
that the cross of Christ invites us to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus, dying and rising with Christ, entering into new life right now where death has no sting for us. Because we've already died. We've died in Christ. So participatory atonement is contrary to this idea that the, the cross that Jesus died in a punitive way, that someone had to take the punishment from God. And so Jesus comes, and for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish. But, if ever, but, but it's, see, it's, it's in terms, there's no word in there about punishment, right? Right? But Paul says, okay, so here's the deal. It's not that he's been punished for you, no, 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 no. You're not absolved because Jesus took this punishment. That, 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 that completely misrepresents God and love and grace. No, it means Jesus died for us, for our benefit, showing us this is how, if you want to be with God, this is the life that you live, and these are the values of God, and you are invited to now participate. And you don't have to live this life of shame, thinking that God is all concerned about every moral choice you've ever made. You participate in the healing of this world. It's this metaphorical language for a radical internal transformation, a process. And you know what's, what, what is the like demonstration of the desire for that process in our lives and in Paul's life? It was baptism. So baptism embodied and displayed the spiritual mystery of this internal dying and resurrection with Christ. Baptism, you see uh, when adults are baptized, they go underwater, they come up out of the water. And I get it, it's kind of a weird thing, right? Like we don't do baptisms in life anymore, but baptism was a normal way of life for those in the ancient Near East. It just happened for lots of different reasons. A lot of ritual cleansing, part of religious structure, it would not have been unusual. Now it's a weird thing, I totally get it, but we still do it because it's powerful. It has deep meaning for us. Right? So Paul says in Romans, when talking about baptism, he says, are you unaware that we who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The symbolism of going under the water into the grave. We were baptized into his death. It's not like we sat on the sideline and just watched it happen and go, thank you, Jesus. I don't have to do that. No, no, no. Paul says, you identify with Christ. Do you not know that you were baptized? And you were indeed buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life right now. Newness of life right now. And then, and then Paul goes to his future hope. If then we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him because we know that Christ was raised from the dead, dies no more. And death has no power over him. And by extension, when you identify with Christ... Your life, not when you get baptized, but when you identify, and for Paul, baptism was part of the ritual, you're saying death no longer has a power over you because you know the goodness of God. And you might not have all the afterlife figured out, but you're grounded in God is good, and whatever's next is going to be amazing because not of me, but because of the goodness of God, because look at what God is trying to do in the world through Jesus, through us, through his followers. As to death, he died to sin once, once and for all. Right? As to his life, he now lives for God. This is the model that happens to us, to live in Christ. And so here's our anchor verse for this series, the one I'd love for you to memorize. It says, consequently, you too must think of yourselves as being dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. Dead to the power of sin. And again, you know my, if you've been around, you know, I, I, I get sin has been, that word has been used to traumatize people spiritually and make you feel like a terrible person. 
if that is a hard word for you, just replace that word with wound and woundings, right? Your woundedness and your wounding, right? That you are no longer, you are dead to the wounds that have been inflicted on you in this world, and you're no longer, uh, and you're dead to the wounding. Like, you're no longer living to wound others, right? But you're now alive because of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what's going to drive us in this. So you see, Paul understood that this whole in Christ, crucified in Christ, crucified Christ, and risen Lord was about undergoing a spirit transplant. Something changes inside of us. Metaphorically, <laughs> these are metaphors, that there's a, a, a pursuit that, that shifts, a value system that there's this transformation internally. The way in which we see the world is different. The way in which we see death, the way in which we understand life, it all changes. So here's what I don't want us to miss as we launch into this series, and I'm just about through the intro. <laughs> the living in Christ, what we have to get from the very beginning of this, is daily choosing to die and rise with Christ. It starts there. Because a life in Christ is a series of death and resurrection over and over and over again. It's that cruciform life. And so for Paul, it was this moment where this revelation comes and it's like, this is what Christ crucified and risen means, that the wisdom of this world will no longer guide and govern my life, but the wisdom of God will. A life of sacrifice, a life of love, a life of forgiveness, a life of carrying your cross, which means when the violence of this world comes after me, I am empowered by the Spirit of God to return that violence as forgiveness and grace and welcome and invitation. Because the lie that you are not loved, the lie that you don't have enough, all those things are what produces the violence. And God is saying, no, I'm creating a people for myself that will help bring about and help open the eyes of the truth that is true of every person on the planet. I love this statement that Richard Rohr says. He says, Jesus is the only person ever on this planet that can make the claim to be the exclusive savior of the world because he included everyone. Isn't that good? He included everyone. So in your everyday normal life, as you get out of here, here's some things, right, that I want to encourage you to, to think about, consider, bring into your mental space, your spiritual life, right? The participatory atonement is just as orthodox it is just as understood by Christians today as this idea of substitution, right? And that this participatory atonement is a cruciform life, a series of death and resurrections. My life looks a lot like Jesus in that I'm constantly dying to self and being raised to new life in the Spirit of God. And it's not a salvation moment. Now, that does not mean that there is anything wrong with having a moment where you decide to live this life and follow Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But the idea of the cross as power to participate in the redemptive work of God in this world, that's good news for everybody, and it has nothing to do with saying a prayer so you get to go to heaven. It's a totally different value system for what Jesus was all about. And I actually think, quite honestly, that for Jesus to give his life to the extreme, to show me what it meant to be in God, to participate with God in this world, is far more beautiful than some weird, transactional, like based upon my understanding or our worldly understanding of just punishment, right? 
There's something beautiful about this ultimate, true, just giving of himself that God didn't demand or require this punitive reality, but we demanded and we required it to be able to understand God. And so Jesus selflessly gives of himself. And so this is the revelation, like in Christ is revealed in Paul's understanding of crucified Christ, right? That's the pattern. So we participate in it. It's the invitation, right? Now, here's the thing. What do you have to crucify for Christ to live in you? That becomes the question in our everyday normal life. And so for the next six weeks, that's what we're going to explore. The next six weeks, we're going to look, if you want to know like the model of Christ's life, and his teaching, you go to the Sermon on the Mount. So for the next six weeks, we're going to pull some pretty powerful things that Jesus says, hey, this is what life in me looks like, basically, right? This is how this looks. And the question becomes, well, what has to die for that to live, right? What has to die if, if forgiveness is going to live? What does that look like? So here's what's going to happen. Next week, we're going to talk about crucifying dangerous religion so that healthy spirituality can live. And then the next week, we're going to talk about crucifying fear so that understanding can live. Because Jesus says that we're to forgive and we're to love one another, even our enemies. But it's fear of the other <laughs> that creates enemies. So, so how do we see fear crucified? Pastor John Smith is going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about crucifying objectification so that human dignity can live. You know, Jesus said things like, when you lust after a person... Right? It's just as if you've committed adultery in your heart. We turn those into moral codes. I think what Jesus is saying is stop treating people like objects. Stop it. They're not there for your pleasure. They're made in the image of God. Right? So what has to die for human dignity to live? Right? And then we're going to talk about crucifying deceit. Jesus talks about being people of our word so that integrity can live and crucifying greed so that trust can live. And then crucifying judgment so that grace can live. This is the life in Christ. Right? And in your everyday life, as you think about your spirituality, if you're following Jesus, I want to encourage you. Like, you don't have to get rid of the language of sacrifice or dying for. We don't have to do that. Just see those as words that are really about radical love and passion for someone or something. We use those in regular, normal life, right? We, we, we say the sacrifices that people make to go to the Olympics. What did they sacrifice? We talk about parents dying for their children. We talk about police officers and firefighters dying to save others. There is no connotation of punitive that someone had to die in that building and the only way that somebody... We don't think like that. So dying doesn't necessarily mean dying in someone's place as a nature of justice. It's just this incredible self-sacrifice and it displays the incredible passion and love that a person has for someone else. So death can come from a space that's being driven by it, right? And this is certainly true of, of what Paul was saying and how they thought of it in antiquity. And then I want to encourage you, if you've never gone through baptism, maybe this is the time. This is what baptism means. Today is the day to understand what is baptism all about. Maybe you've heard of it and seen it, but it's a ritual where we, we say, listen, I want to die with Christ and live in God, live in Christ. And it, it is about the beauty of what God is doing in us. It's not about what we're going to do for God. Like, that's the other thing about baptism. Like people say, oh, I don't think I'm ready. I'm not good enough. I'm like, no, you're not. Don't worry about it. We're never good enough. Everything is about what God has done for us and in us and, and is doing in us, right? So if you're interested in baptism, I would encourage you to participate in that. 
We're actually going to do baptisms on Palm Sunday. It's a kind of a celebration Sunday. And so if you'd like to get baptized, maybe you've been thinking about it, just check that box. And this week marks the beginning of Lent. And so as we think about the cross, as we head to Good Friday, I think it's important that we begin our journey towards the cross with a healthy understanding of it. And so I want to encourage you to choose your own Lenten adventure. So this 40 days, we're going to be united as a church in that would you say, how can I really make the most of this season of Lent? It's 40 days where we experience the healing power of repentance, where we pause and we consider our lives. And if you don't like the word repentance, think about how we acknowledge our woundedness so that we can find healing, (laughs) so that we can stop wounding others, right? It's this beautiful season right? And so we're going to be reflecting on what has to die in us so that Christ can live and be raised in us. So here's the scoop. We've got, um, I think there's like 10 potential Lent resources that we've kind of aggregated for you to choose from, and you can find your own. doesn't matter. Um, and so in our, in our resource center, in the bookstore, we have um, some different resources that are there. Go look at them. See what works for you. Uh, you can download uh, a few of them for free online. There's PDFs of them. Uh, they're all kind of recommended by our staff. We just said, hey, what Lenten resources have you participated in or that you know that are out there? And so we have, um, we have some stuff from Richard Rohr. We've got um, a book, Lenten Easter Wisdom from St. Francis and St. Eclair of Assisi, some stuff from uh, another theologian called Walter Brueggemann. If you're a family and you want to have some activities as a family, we have a resource called Faithful Families for Lent, Easter, and Resurrection. Um, That might be something for you to participate in and be a part of. Um, I'm going to do one that we have called Lent of Liberation, Confronting the Legacy of American Slavery. So this is the one I'm going to work through. So what what, what could you do to make the most of these 40 days to participate in? And I just want to encourage you, part of that is we have a digital kind of discussion forum. If you want to participate and just kind of hear what other people are doing and say, hey, here's what's happening to me in my life. I read this in my Lenten devotion, or I experienced this as I was kind of considering God's work in my life. And you just want to be a part of this community that's kind of working through this. You can check that box and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make sure you're on the email list. It's all going to be done through email. Uh, It's a new system that we're trying, so it'll be fun. If you want to see the resources and get an idea of what they are before you head out to the bookstore, you can scan this QR code, and that'll bring you up to the webpage on our website that shows you all the different resources, right? And so as we kind of walk into this season, all right? um, Lent is a really powerful thing, and we want to start with ashes. (laughs) We're going to start with ashes, Because the ashes are this reminder at the beginning of Lent that from dust we came and to dust we returned, that there is more to us than these physical things that we think through. Death and resurrection. So so we're going to have a a time in just a moment where we'll have our room hosts that are going to be here and they'll have ashes. Ash Wednesday is this coming Wednesday, but I don't know if you know it or not. I'm not a person who's super tied to religious things. So rather than have you all have to come back out on Wednesday and 10% of you do that, we could all do it today. (laughs) And we'll call it Ash Sunday. And so our room hosts are just going to form a crucifix, a cruciform on your forehead with the ashes that come from the palms from Palm Sunday of last year. And it's just this symbol of like, I want to participate. I want to participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus. You might not understand it all. You might not know it. This might be your first time at church and you go, man, there's just something about this that's resonating in my heart. And you just want to participate. Remember, everything that, that we do, every spiritual practice is always about what God is doing in us. It's never about what we are doing, right? So we're going to begin Lent with ashes. 
There's a really famous passage in Scripture that people quote all the time to talk about heaven, right? That, that this is what God has for you. And it's found in 1 Corinthians just after that big, long passage I read for you. And this is what it says. It says this. It says, it is written, what eye has not seen and ear has not heard and what has not entered into the human heart, what God has prepared for those who love him. This God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Paul is talking about not heaven, not the afterlife, the crucified one. That the crucified one is what no eye has seen and no ear has heard. And the joy that comes from that life is being revealed through the Spirit. And so living in Christ is about right now. It's about participating in what no one could have ever conceived as being God at work in the world. And so when we live in Christ, when we actually live this cruciform life, what happens in our world is our lives begin to reveal what is happening. Just like Jesus was revealing what is a part of this world, what is happening, and that is the unimaginable, indescribable, un inconceivable goodness of God in our world. It's the hundreds of volunteers that are lining up on the border and welcoming women and children who are hugging brothers and husbands and uncles and leaving them to go back and give their lives. That's the goodness of God. It's when you receive an offering and thousands of dollars are raised from people that say, well, I just, I'm going to have to give up X, Y, and Z to provide. Like it reveals what is there, not what's coming from outside, but what is there. So today I'd just invite you to stand as we sing this song. If you'd like to receive ashes, you look around you because there might be a station that's closer to you, behind you. We have two in the back and two up front here. So while we sing this song, I would encourage you to come and just receive the ashes as, a, as just a statement of faith that I want to participate in the crucifixion. I want to participate with Christ in the death and resurrection so that I can find life in Christ. And this season, I really want to explore what does it mean to take on the mind of Christ, to live in Christ, and then we'll have our blessing and get us out of here. Well, I know that was a lot. Tackle a thousand years of a bit dangerous understanding of the cross in 40 minutes, so hang in there. You might want to re-listen to that one. <laughs> but I think we're going to get into the real practical implications over the next six weeks, so y'all get gold stars for making it through today. So I just have a blessing for you this morning as you um, turn your attention to Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and what's going on next in your life. So would you just close your eyes and open up your hearts and open up your hands, your arms. Maybe just take a nice deep breath. <laughs> nice deep breath. So today we begin our journey towards the cross. And as we focus our hearts on the healing power of repentance, may God bless you with hope, peace, and a deep sense of spiritual healing. As you choose your own Lent adventure, may you meet the God that Jesus reveals on this journey over the next 40 days, the God who longs for participation and does not require substitution. And in this season, May you see and understand the gospel of Christ crucified and risen to be an invitation to new life in Christ. And may you find the humility to repent of your wounding of others so that you might experience the healing that's found in the empty tomb. 
And may you come to see yourself as Paul understood himself, dead to sin and living for God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have an awesome week, everybody. Thank you for being here today. Make sure you stop by the Resource Center. Check out those Lent devotions.